Now, part of the reason I have to get up here and encourage you to read books is because people don't read books anymore. And you know why? It's because we like our information to be dished up in particular ways. So our attention span these days is so short, there's so much noise going on, and and also we just want to get out there and do something, not just talk, 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 talk. We don't want to spend all life wrestling with ideas. That is, we want truth to be simple, entertaining, and practical. So we don't read books. Now, against that backdrop, it's actually no surprise that Christians are also somewhat ignorant and embarrassed when it comes to the Trinity. That belief that God is Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons but one God. It doesn't sound simple, and in fact, it sounds the opposite. It sounds like sort of dusty, obscure theology that only theologians with nothing fun to do in their life would be interested in. And it hardly strikes us of any practical value whatsoever. So we don't spend any time thinking about the Trinity. We're hardly ever taught anything about it. And when it comes up with others who are not Christians, there's often a lot of sort of shifty looks and kicking at the dirt and mumbled somethings. And, or sometimes the bold and dodgy claim, oh, you don't need to worry about that. It's not that important. Seriously? It's who we think God is. Not important, the Trinity. Now, while it might not be simple, I want to show you tonight that we can be clear about what we mean when we call God Trinity. And far from being boring and impractical, I want to show you tonight how, how actually getting that God is three and one and one and three, how that does change everything. It's not just about how we understand God. It's going to be a game changer for how we, how we see the world. And getting that God is... Trinity actually has heaps of day-by-day just practical implications for each of us. It's a wonderful, it's a glorious, astounding truth about who God is. And we should tell the world about it. And we should want to praise him for it. But to start at the beginning, I do understand why some Christians might be a bit embarrassed about the idea that their God is a Trinity. So have a look in your book, page 14. You can see some of the objections others have to, ha- to this idea of who God is. Uh, first of all, they're from the Quran. Say not Trinity, desist. It will be better for you. For Allah is one God, glory be to him. Far exalted is he above having a son. See, for Islam, the idea that God could have a son is dishonoring to Allah. So the Quran says, don't go there. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, similarly, find the idea of God being three in one and one in three unacceptable. Uh, one Jehovah's Witness writer poured ridicule on the idea like this. There are some clergymen, no doubt, who are really sincere in thinking that Jesus was his own father, that the Almighty is the son of himself, that each one of these is a third person who's the same as the other two and yet different from them. So the whole concept of God as Trinity there is just ridiculous. makes no sense. And uh, Richard Dawkins, uh, who's actually following here Thomas Jefferson, thinks likewise. He says, Thomas Jefferson, as so often, got it right when he said, ridicule is the only weapon which can be used against unintelligible propositions. Ideas must be distinct before reason can act upon them. 
and no man ever had a distinct idea of the Trinity. It is the mere abracadabra of the mountebanks calling themselves the priests of Jesus. So according to Jefferson and Dawkins, the idea that God is Trinity is just too hard to grasp. It's unintelligible. And so ridicule is the only right response. So given those sort of responses, I can understand why Christians might think that the Trinity is a bit of, bit of an embarrassing doctrine. But even some Christians who aren't embarrassed about it still think that we shouldn't shout it out too loudly either. So Fred Sanders, as I mentioned before, he's an evangelical who's written a great book on the Trinity called The Deep Things of God, and he encourages Christians in that book to think more deeply about the Trinity. But in the introduction, he separates out speaking about the Trinity from speaking about the Gospel. Have a look there at the bottom of page 14. He says, if the exercise of this book is successful, the doctrine of the Trinity can and should subsequently recede from the foreground of our attention back into the background. When evangelical Christianity is functioning properly, he says, and its Trinitarian roots are nourishing its life, the evangelicals are busy telling the gospel, not talking constantly about the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, from this morning's talk, can you see why I have a bit of a problem with what Fred Sanders says here? What's the gospel that we're busy telling? It's that Jesus Christ is Lord. That Jesus is, as we saw this morning, included in the unique divine identity, and yet at the same time, he's not God the Father. So you can't actually properly proclaim the gospel that Jesus is Lord without pointing to some plurality in God. But if we're going to stick with monotheism, that there is only one God, we're going to have to come up with something like the Trinity just to make sense of the gospel. So have a look at the top of the next page, page 15. And you can see how Broughton Knox put it. He says, The doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of the Christian religion. Unless this doctrine is held firmly and truly, it's not possible to be a Christian. Why is that, you say? Why couldn't you be a Christian without believing the Trinity? For the Christian is one who acknowledges that Jesus is Lord, yet adheres to the religion of the Bible, which emphasizes so strongly that there's only one God. It's just not possible to say Jesus is Lord and hold to the truth that there's only one God unless you hold something like a Trinitarian understanding of who God is. That is, he's three in one and one in three. And in fact, that's what we're going to see as we look at the next part, part B there on page 15. When you start with the gospel about Jesus and you dig down into that gospel story, as we're going to do now, you see that God reveals himself as Trinitarian in the gospel story. He is somehow three in one and one in three. And that's really important because sometimes you'll hear people talk like the Trinity is something sort of made up by theologians imposed on the simple Bible to make the gospel more complicated than it really needs to be. Friend, it's not the case. If you say Jesus is Lord, you believe something like the Trinity. And when you dig into the gospel story, there it is played out for you. So let's have a look at that. The gospel is the story of the triune God. 
Uh, we begin to trace it out there on page 15. I've divided up the events surrounding Jesus' life and ministry into three phases, if you like. Phase number one, the Father sends the Son in the Spirit. Uh, we'll start with Jesus' conception. Uh, so from Luke chapter 1, verse 35, the angel said to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called Son of God. Now, notice straight away, and we're going to see this a lot in this section, there are three at work here. There's the Most High, who a bit earlier in verse 32 is actually also called the Lord God, the Most High. Then there's Jesus, identified as the Son of God. And again, earlier in the passage in verse 32, he's called Son of the Most High. And then there's the Holy Spirit, who's identified here as the power of the Most High. Three related persons, right? The Most High, the Son of the Most High, and the power of the Most High. They're all clearly related. Or the other titles that are used in that passage, the Lord God, the Son of God, and the Holy Spirit. There's a distinction between them, but clearly there's also a relation, a a unity. They are working together. And the particular way they're working together here is that the Son comes from God and takes on human flesh inside Mary in the power of the Spirit. And a similar pattern continues then throughout Jesus' earthly ministry. At his baptism, we read there from Mark chapter 1, verse 10, And just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved, with you I'm well pleased. So again, you've got three distinct persons. There's the father who speaks from heaven, the son whom he addresses, and the spirit whom the father sends upon the son to empower him for his earthly ministry. And you see the same thing again at the climax of Jesus' ministry, which is his death on the cross when he dies for the sins of the world. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. Through the eternal spirit, he, that is Christ, offered himself without blemish to God. Through the spirit, Christ offers himself to God. So even in the sacrificial work on the cross, the son carries out his ministry in the power of the spirit with which he's been equipped by the father. And so too, finally here in his resurrection from the dead, Romans chapter 1. He was declared to be son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So the father raises the son from the dead in the power of the spirit. So that's phase one. The father sends the son to do his earthly ministry, including his death and resurrection, in the power of the spirit. Well, what about after Jesus' resurrection? Well, that brings us to phase two over the page, page 16. The Father sends the Son, sorry, the Father sends the Spirit through the Son. So after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, Acts chapter 2 records that the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus' followers in fulfillment of the promise that God had made to his people hundreds of years before. Now, here in Acts chapter 2, verse 32, 33. We looked at it briefly this morning. The Apostle Peter is explaining to the crowd what's just happened. This is what he says. This Jesus God raised up, and of that 
us all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you both see and hear. So the Spirit comes to us from the Father but through the Son. And then there's a third phase as well. The Father is glorified by the Son and the Spirit. Now, this phase is all about the goal of the ministry of the Father, Son, and Spirit. First of all, you notice that the Spirit's focus is never on himself, but on the Son and the Father. Passage there is from John 16, starting at verse 14. Jesus is speaking about the Spirit. He says, He, the Spirit, will glorify me, because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. For this reason, I said, He will take what is mine and declare it to you. So notice again, three distinct persons there, but also a commonality. Everything that belongs to the Father belongs also to the Son, and that's what is proclaimed to the rest of us by the Spirit. But notice that the Spirit's goal is not to promote himself. The Spirit's goal is to bring glory to the Son. But you see there in the next verse on your page, from John 17, verse 1, in turn, the Son's focus is not himself, the son's focus is the father. John 17, 1, after Jesus had spoken these words, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. So even as the spirit and the father are glorifying the son, the son's ultimate goal is to bring glory to the father. You see how the Apostle Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 15, there on your page, as he looks forward to the very end of this present age and the ultimate purposes of God. He says, chapter 15, verse 24, then comes the end when Christ hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed every ruler and every authority and power. For he, Christ, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who put all things in subjection under him, so that God may be all in all. Jesus, the Son's focus is not himself, but his his ultimate goal is to hand all things back to the Father. So ultimately, we have the Father being glorified by the Son and by the Spirit. So what do you see here in this super quick retelling of the gospel story through those phases is that we have three divine persons, the Father, the Son and the Spirit, who interact in these particular ways and yet all of this is described in the scriptures that maintain the basic monotheism. There is only one God. So how do you fit that together? Well, turn the page to page 17. Have a look there. The Christian conclusion. One God in three persons. Now, we're going to see in a bit later that over the first three and a half centuries of the Christian faith, there was an ongoing debate about how exactly we ought to put together and express the truths about God that we've just seen revealed in the gospel story. Uh, The matter matter was finally settled um, at a church council, like a whole church council in Constantinople in 381 
AD. And what they did there was they reaffirmed the decisions made at an earlier council in Nicaea back in 325 AD. And hence the statement of faith that they came up with, they called the Nicene Creed because they thought it captured the teachings of that earlier Nicene Council. Now this creed, which is there in part on page 17, has become an accepted statement of Christian orthodoxy. That is, Christians across all denominations affirm together that this captures what God has revealed in the scriptures about himself. So I'm going to read it out to you, but I'll make a few comments along the way. So here's the Nicene Creed from 381. Uh, We believe, they wrote, in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. Right? Note there, clearly monotheistic. Christians believe there's only one God. Then it goes on. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, you might notice there, that's an echo of the way Paul talked in 1 Corinthians 8 that we looked at this morning, when he took the Shema from the Old Testament and, and made put Jesus into it. He said, we believe in one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. They've picked up that language and used it here, right? So you're on sound sort of scriptural language and basis when you uh, say this creed and believe this creed. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father. What's that about? Come back to that. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, there it is again, not made, of one being with the Father, through him all things were made. For us human beings and our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became truly human. Now again, we're reaffirming actually there that we believe in only one God. We're reaffirming that when we say the Son is of one being with the Father. There are not two gods here. There's only one. Father and Son share the same being. But how do we capture the relationship between Father and Son? The Creed's answer here is this language of begetting. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. Now, I don't know when you last used the word begotten. Um, Maybe you said to the dog, begotten from me, you mangy beast. That's actually not what begotten means. Um, It's just an old-fashioned word for producing children. Parents beget children. And in particular, children having been begotten, children who are begotten by parents... Those children share the same humanity as their parents. They share in the same substance as their parents. So when the creed says the son is begotten of the father, it's telling us that the son shares the same substance as the father. He's just as much God as God the father. That's why the creed then says he's God from God. Light from light, true God from true God, of one being with the Father. Now, um, if you catch me on a good day, I can usually tell you when each of the five children Jenny and I have had were born, most of the time, um, provided I do it in order. If 
you ask me to do it in reverse order, I'm hopeless. Got no idea. They could, I don't know when they were born. But when did God the Father beget God the Son? Well, the answer in the creed is um, never. The Son is eternally begotten, it says, of the Father. There was never a moment when God the Son did not exist as the Son of God the Father. And there's never been a moment when God the Father didn't have a relationship with God the Son. They have existed as one God in all eternity, as Father and Son in an eternal relationship. There was never a moment of begetting. They are, the Son is eternally begotten. The point of the begotten language is meant to help capture the fact that they share the same substance, like I do with my kids. It's not to suggest that there was a moment when God the Son sprang into being. Now, of course, there was a moment when God the Eternal Son became a human being. That happened at a particular moment in time when he was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. But then we keep going down, skip down a little bit in the creed, it moves on to the Spirit. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. You think, calling the Holy Spirit Lord, really? Yes, that's in the Bible, actually. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17, the Spirit is indeed called Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17. It continues on. The Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. That is, it's saying here, the Spirit is fully divine. He's worshipped. He's glorified along with the Father and the Son because ultimately there is only one God and the Spirit is, God the Spirit is in the Godhead. So he's worshipped and glorified. But unlike the Son, right, the Son was begotten of the Father, the Spirit, what's the language it uses here? The Spirit proceeds from the Father. Now that's picking up on, langu- on the Bible's language from our John chapter 14 that we looked at actually just a little bit earlier. The Spirit is sent from the Father through the Son. Now, the reason there's brackets around the and the Son bit there uh, is because that was actually added later. But it does helpfully, I think, capture the dynamic we saw in that gospel story that the Father sends the Spirit through the Son. So if you want to summarize what this Bible teaches when it comes to what God's like and what this creed tries to capture... Maybe the easiest way to do it is with a set of statements. And I've got those three boxes on the right-hand side of the creed there. Three sets of statements. First of all, the Bible tells us that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. All fully divine, all equally God. But second, the Bible also constantly tells us there's only one God. And then finally... The gospel story that we've traced out tonight clearly tells us that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all distinct. The Father is not the Son, is not the Spirit. You can't substitute them for each other. They are clearly distinct. Father, Son, and Spirit, all God, but only one God, and yet the Father is not the Son, is not the Spirit. See, I told you you could just say it clearly. You can say it clearly. It might not fit your YouTube definition of simple, but it's clear. 
Okay, so we've traced out the gospels, how the gospel is the story of the one God. And we've explored a little bit of how the Christians held together that picture of God as Trinity. Let me try and show you why I think this is just such a wonderful picture of who God is. Part C, the wonder of our Trinitarian God. First thing to reflect on is this. Everything that God does, he does as Trinity. Now, if we look for a moment at Jesus the Son, when you see Jesus carrying out his earthly ministry of of teaching and healing and ultimately of dying for the sins of the world, as it's recorded for us in the Gospels, that work that Jesus does, he tells us, is the Father's work. See the little picture there at the bottom of page 17, the left-hand speech bubble is uh, from John chapter 4, verse 34. Jesus says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, that is God the Father, and to complete his work. Or again, John chapter 10, verse 37 to 38, in the right-hand speech bubble, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So here Jesus is saying something even stronger than just I'm doing the work of the Father. Now he's saying the Father is in me and I am in the Father. There is such a mutuality of relationship between Jesus and the Father. They are somehow in one another. When one is working, the other is present. And yet they still remain distinct as father and son, but they mutually indwell each other so that one is always present in the other. Now, there are other places in the New Testament where similar things are actually said of the Spirit. You can look up later, Romans chapter 8, 9 to 11. The Spirit in that passage is called the Spirit of the Father and then separately called Spirit of Christ. And then it's also said such that if the Spirit is in you, then Christ is in you. So whenever one person of the Trinity is present and working, all three of Father, Son and Spirit are also present and working, even though each does so in their own distinct way. Bruce Ware put it like this at the top of page 18. If If you're at all musical, you might appreciate what he says here. He says, the three members of the Godhead work together in harmony, not in unison, but in harmony. Unison expresses a form of unity, yet it has no texture and richness. Harmony, however, communicates the idea of unified expression, but only through differing yet complementary parts. What that means is that every Christian doctrine about God has a Trinitarian shape. In fact, you to come up this week with, with a Christian doctrine, a doctrine of our faith, that is not Trinitarian. So let me just name a few so you get an idea. You can jot them down at the dot points uh, on page 18. Now, for each of these, you can fill in the blanks as we go. Uh, we'll start with the doctrine of revelation or knowledge of God. According to the scriptures, you can see some of the verses there, we know the Father... Through the Son, 
by the Spirit. It's the Spirit that illumines our hearts so that we can actually understand God's revelation of himself in the Son. All three are at work. One God, three persons working together in that moment of revelation. Or we can pick, say, the doctrine of election, being chosen by God. According to the Scriptures, we're called by the Father into union with the Son through the work of the Spirit. We're united to Jesus, such that what has happened to him has happened to us. We're united to him by the Spirit, through faith. And we're called into that relationship by the Father. Moving on. Salvation. You can see there from the Scriptures, we're reconciled by the Father through the death of his Son, offered through the Spirit, as we saw earlier from Hebrews. Or sanctification. Now, that sanctification is the process by which God transforms us into greater holiness, more likeness of Christ. We're transformed by the Father into the image of the Son through the indwelling work of the Spirit. One final one for you. What about prayer and worship? Just to pick a different sort of truth of the Christian faith. Prayer and worship. Yeah, according to the scriptures, when you look up some of those passages, you can see the way it works is that we approach the Father through the Son in the Spirit. And you can go on. Doctrines of creation, of spiritual gifts, of the church, of eschatology, of the scriptures. My challenge to you, any Christian doctrine, any doctrine of our faith will be Trinitarian. The point is that everything God does, he does as Father, Son and Spirit. So all of our theologizing about God, who he is, what he's doing, how we respond to him, it must be Trinitarian because that's who God is. He's three in one, one in three. He's distinct but never separate. And I think one of our difficulties is that we are not Trinitarian enough. We often just focus on one person in the Godhead and the work that God, that particular person in the Godhead is doing, rather than see all the time that God always operates distinctly as Father, Son and Spirit, but never separately. He always acts together. Now, if I can make it more personal, if we move on to the top of page 19... Everything God does, he does as Trinity, including his love and grace for you. You may never have thought about it in these terms, but if you're a Christian, your experience of God is Trinitarian. He expresses his love and grace towards you in a distinct and precious Trinitarian way. Uh, John Webster makes a point that we can't just stop at discussing God as he is in himself. Why can't we do that? Why, I mean, do it in philosophy all the time, discuss what God... He says, no, no, you can't just discuss God as he is in himself because when God reveals who, him, who he is in Jesus, what is revealed is that he is deeply and profoundly a God who is interested in you. Have a look at what 
John Webster says. He says, It is a fundamental rule of Christian theology that a doctrine of God, which is only a doctrine of God, is not a Christian doctrine of God. The task of articulating a Christian doctrine of God, because it is the doctrine of the Holy Trinity made known in free majesty in the economy of creation and reconciliation and perfection, is not finished when it is spoken of God in himself. And here's his point. For God is essentially to the depths of his triune being, God for us and God with us, the one whose mercy evokes the miracle of human fellowship with himself. Webster's saying if you start with the gospel, as we've tried to do tonight, then you don't just get to the end and go, oh, wow, God is Father, Son, and Spirit, three in one, one in three. I see it there in the gospel story. You can't stop there because the gospel story reveals that what God is like tells you that God the Father, Son, and Spirit has revealed himself to you for the very purpose of establishing a relationship with you. So look at this incredible prayer that Jesus prayed for us in John 17. As you, Father, are in me, he says, and I am in you, may they also, talking about you and me, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me the glory that you have given me i've given them so they may be one as we are one i in them and you in me that they may be completely one so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me You see how Jesus describes the relationship he offers to those who believe in him? Verse 21 there, that we might be in him and in the Father, just as he is in the Father and the Father is in him. We're talking here of being caught up into God's Trinitarian relationships with himself. Or down in verse 23, that Jesus would be in us And that the Father would love us just as he's loved the Son. When you become a Christian, you are caught up into this divine relationship of love that God has within himself as Father, Son and Spirit. We're going to talk more about that on Wednesday night when we talk about God, our loving Redeemer. But for the moment, I want you just to get the point that that God is Trinity is not some distant doctrine out there far removed from you. Everything God does, he does as Trinity, including all the love and the grace that he's shown you in Jesus, even to the point of drawing you up into his own Trinitarian relationships as Father, Son, and Spirit. So in the word of Fred Sanders, um, as Christians, he says, we are compassed about, compassed about by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You see how he um, puts it there at the bottom of page 19. Christians should recognize that when we start thinking about the Trinity, we do so because we find ourselves already deeply involved in the reality of God's triune life as he has opened it up to us for our salvation. We are immersed in the Trinitarian reality. We are surrounded by the Trinity, compassed about on all sides by the presence and the work 
of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, so the God is Trinity. It's no weird add-on to being a Christian, right? Oh, yeah, you've got to also believe God's Trinity. No, it's at the very heart of the gospel announcement about who God is. It forms the framework through which we then understand everything about God, everything that he does. And it's the truth about God that surrounds and saves us as Christians. It's the truth about him who calls us into relationship with himself as Father, Son, and Spirit. Okay, well, if, if the fact that God is Trinity is at the heart of everything, surely it must have some pretty significant practical implications, right? If it's at the heart of everything, it's got to have some practical implications. It's, yeah, well, it does. Massive ones. Over the page, page 20. Knowing God as Trinity makes a world of difference. Uh, we'll start, though, with a word of warning and encouragement from a guy who has a great uh, name in history, Augustine of Hippo. <laughs> He's a great Christian thinker, uh, and he wrote a very famous early Christian work on the Trinity. And uh, Surprisingly, it's called On the Trinity. <laughs> and he says this, In no other subject... Is error more dangerous or inquiry more laborious or the discovery of truth more profitable? So that's a bit of encouragement for you as we head on from here. Because the Trinity is so important for our understanding of who God is and what he's doing, because it's got so many wonderful implications for us when it's rightly understood, you need to heed, though, Augustine's warning. Make sure you don't get it wrong, okay? So I've listed four of the most common ways people misunderstand the Trinity, just so you can do a bit of self-analysis. You go, as I go through and I'm saying, oh, this is wrong and that's heresy and, you know, you go, all right, good, good, yep, and mental note, don't believe that anymore, okay, right? Just do some self-theological correction as we go through and we'll know you were orthodox all the way along. First of all, tritheism. Uh, Tritheism has never really been a theological option for Christians. Why? Because as I've said repeatedly, the Bible says over and over again that we know God is one. And Jesus himself upholds the Shema, right? That God is one. He does that in Mark chapter 12, verse 29, Mark 12, 29. So tritheism has never really been uh, considered as an option for Christians. Though, interestingly, I wonder whether many Christians are probably tritheistic in practice. You might say, oh, well, I mean, they don't think they believe it, but they just act like they do. Is that really a problem? Well, frankly, yes, that's a problem. Uh, For many reasons. One, it dishonors God, I think, by misrepresenting him. But two, defective belief always ends up in defective practice. Always. You might want to then think together about maybe in your review group tomorrow, how would tritheism play out in defective Christian living? Maybe you would end up focusing possibly on just one rather than the other or even playing one off against the other or how might that play out in defective thinking and and living? The second misunderstanding of the Trinity there is um, modalism. 
one God playing three roles. So the modalist view is that a God appears to us as Father, Son and Spirit, but who he is in himself remains hidden from you. So in the diagram in in your book there, you have to imagine, and you get to draw yourself here, right? Draw yourself on the right-hand side, looking to the left along the page. So what you're seeing, I'll act it out for you, um, Father, Son, and Spirit, here are you, draw you, and you're looking along the page, and you can see Father, Son, and Spirit. But who God really is, is hidden from you. It's behind the dotted line. You can't see there. You can just see Father, Son, and Spirit. This is the modalist view, understanding of who God is. It's quite a clever way of trying to put together who God is revealed in the Bible. In some ways, you know, it appears to maintain God's threeness. He appears as Father, Son, and Spirit. And it seems to preserve his oneness. Behind it all, he really is just one. So we can keep saying God is one. But let me show you why it fails. Uh, who here has ever seen the Chris Lilly show, Summer Heights High? Do you remember that? Right. You remember Summer Heights High? And you remember in that Chris Lilly plays three different characters in the show. He plays Jamie. That's, sorry, Jamae. That's J-A apostrophe M-I-E. Yep. A girl who's on an exchange from a posh private school. Uh, he also plays Mr. G, a drama teacher who's uh, rather full of himself. Uh, And he also plays my favourite character, Jonah, who's um, a a Tongan troublemaker student. Okay, so here's my question. Which one of those characters is the real Chris Lilly? Which one of those is the real Chris Lilly? Well, you might say, oh, well, all of them. No! None of them! None of them are the real Chris Lilly. Is Chris, are any of those three the real Chris Lilly? No, Chris Lilly is something else, isn't he? Something hidden from you when you've only got access to Summer Heights High. See, if that's what God's like, he just appears as Father, Son and Spirit, but he keeps his real self hidden, do you then really know God? You don't know God at all. Not as he is in himself. And that becomes a big problem because God God tells us that he's a God of truth. Isaiah 45, verse 19. God is a God of truth. If he's just playing characters, if he's kept himself hidden from us, in what sense has he actually revealed himself truly to us? If he's not Father, Son and Spirit, if he's some other thing unknown to us, then our knowledge of God He's a fiction. But that can't be if he's a God of truth. Okay, so the third mistake is at the bottom of your page, Arianism, or there was when the sun was not-ism. This view is named after Arius, who championed it. Uh, He lived in the 300s AD. Arius argued that God has to be unchangeable. If he's going to be God, he has to be unchangeable, he has to be unique, he has to actually be unknowable and only one if he's going to be preserve his godness. Therefore, in Arius' thinking, the substance of God couldn't be shared with another being. So what he then said was, so what, what happened was that the sun is actually a created being, in Arius' view, the sun was created first, 
then everything else was created through him. And out of that came the Aryan slogan about the sun. There was a moment, there was when he was not, because he was the created being. So the dotted line in your diagram separates on the left the uncreated, the father, from the created on the right, the son and the spirit. Now, Arius' teaching was part of this Trinitarian controversy that um, prompted the councils of Nicaea and Constantinople in the 4th century AD. And you can see part of the problem with Arius' view was that if you're worshipping Jesus as a Christian, you're worshipping a created being. You're worshipping a creature. But the Bible clearly condemns worshipping a created being, a creature, as idolatry. So if the Son is created, it's just not right to worship him. And so it was that at those councils in the 4th century, Arianism was condemned as a heresy. And if you go back and look at the Nicene Creed, which you might like to do in your review group tomorrow, you'll, you'll see particular lines in those, that creed that cl- are clearly formulated to rule out Arianism. Okay? Well, the final misunderstanding of the Trinity is at the top of the next page, uh, God in three bits-ism. I think this is probably the way most Christians think about God. Uh, if they manage to avoid tritheism, they think of God as divided into three bits. There's the Father bit, the Son bit, and the Spirit bit. What's the problem with that, though? Well, the problem with that is that none of those are themselves fully God. None of them in themselves has the fullness of God. They're each just a third of God. But that's not how the New Testament talks about Jesus the Son. You can see there on your page what the Apostle Paul said of Jesus in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. He says, For in Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. When God the Son took on flesh, it wasn't just a bit of God who became human because God the Son is the fullness of God, even though he's distinct from God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. You can see how Bruce Ware explains it there on your page. The Father, Son and Holy Spirit are not each one-third God, but each is fully God, equally God, and this is true eternally, and simultaneously. And, you know, I don't blame you if this particular point, you start to object, you say, you're messing with my mind. <laughs> How can each person in God be the fullness of God if there's still other... That, it, we need another whole sort of dimension of reality to sort of, sort of compass that. And God doesn't make any sense. Well, God may be unlike anything else that exists, but that doesn't mean that it's not true. Moreover, since we're talking about the God who made the whole universe, it's actually fairly reasonable that he could exceed in being anything else that is in creation. He made the whole lot of it. He, he could be something grander, more amazing in himself than anything he has made. That's possible. God is not obliged to fit our rational expectations. 
I mean, he created our minds. He's, he's given us this, our, our capacity for rational thinking, but he's not obliged to then fit within our expectations of the way everything has to be, including him. In fact, there's plenty of other things in the creation that he's made that don't fit our rational expectations. Anyone do quantum physics? Wave-particle duality, the probability function for the placement of an electron. If you're an art student, just, just go nod or something there. <laughs> just, because, just because God being Trinity doesn't fit into our rational conceptions of how things ought to be doesn't actually make it not true. But then let's talk a little bit about the difference that God as Trinity actually makes. Jump over the page, will you, to page 22. The transforming reality that God is Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, Once you've grasped that God is three in one and one in three, it really does have massive implications. Uh, For starters, he who alone is God is never alone. If God is Father and Son and Spirit, he who alone is God is never alone, is he? For all eternity, God has been in relationship with himself as Father, Son and Spirit. And reflecting on that reality, Broughton Knox makes an observation with, I think, revolutionary implications. It's there under point A, ultimate reality and relationships. This is what he says. The doctrine of the Trinity tells us that ultimate reality is personal relationship. Now, you've got to get this right. I remember when I first read this a long time ago. I first read this. I'd just been through a difficult breakup. A girl, I mean, you know, it's true. I'd been dumped by this girl and I read this and it tore me to pieces. Ultimate reality is personal relationship. No! <laughs> I, I was completely reading it through my own pained existence at that moment, right? That's not what he's saying. He's saying, not that your personal relationships are ultimate reality. He's saying that ultimate reality, behind everything else you say, what is there? What is there? There's, a, there's personal relationship. God, he says, is ultimate reality. And is the ground of all other reality. And yet God, he says, is not a single monad or an impersonal absolute. God is relationship. In the light of this doctrine, he says, personal relationships are seen to be ultimate, are seen to be the most real things that are. That really challenges the way our society sees reality, doesn't it? How do we evaluate reality? We we see everything in individualistic terms or in scientific terms or, frankly, in economic terms. That's how we judge reality, I think. Individually, via science or via the economy. What's real is what we can see and touch, what we can test in the lab and the dollars in our bank account. That's what's real. The thought that actually what's most real are our relationships, that is a really surprising thought. It's actually a bit unsettling. 
we're used to valuing, uh, used to weighing up our value in terms of academic or career success or materialistic possessions, but it's relationships that are at the heart of reality. How often when push comes to shove, do we actually put a priority, real priority, on our relationships? Or do we do what most people seem to do and we squeeze relationships around everything else that happens in life? The real stuff, your career, your money. What difference would it make if we saw relationships as the most real thing that is? How would it affect our Christian community, in church, in the EU. And I think this is one of those things that, that really distinguishes the Christian understanding of God from other faiths. Other faiths don't have relationship at the centre. They have, if you think about, say, of Islam, there is, God is a single um, a, a monad. He, he, he is just a one Single unity, Allah, who rules with power and authority. And hence, in, in, in uh, Islam, it's about submission. In this Christian understanding of who God is and how he's revealed himself in Christ, what is at the center? It is eternal relationships of mutual love. And all of the rest of reality flows from that. I find that an incredibly powerful and and wonderful vision for understanding reality. I I just think, why am I such an idiot that I don't spend more time working out how that should shape everything? Broughton Knox continues there with a second reflection under point B other person sentence. He says, ultimate reality, that is God himself, is good, personal, relational, and these relationships in the Godhead are other person-centered, as all good, true relationships must be. This is the character of God. This is how creation has been made. We've been created in God's image for relationship, and this relationship must be other person-centered. There's a radical critique there, isn't there, of our self-centeredness coming out of uh, this other person-centered relationship in God himself. Remember how we trace that, right, in the gospel story? We saw the Father glorified the Son, the Son glorifies the Father, the Spirit glorifies the Son. God's relationships are other person-centered. And we've been created in God's image for other person-centered relationships. So for you to be really true to yourself... For you to be the most true version of you you could be, according to this, you need to not think about yourself. You've been created in the image of God. You need to be other person-centered because that's who he is in himself, other person-centered. What tragedies and troubles in our lives and around the world would evaporate, frankly, if as those created in God's image, we imaged his other person-centeredness. What would that mean for asylum seekers and Australian government policy? Don't be silly and think that it's an easy, obvious solution. 
It's very complicated. But this does have something to say to us. Sorry, just moving on there. Our third reflection of uh, Broughton Knox on God's Trinitarian relationships, and I'm rushing towards the end here because I'm nearly out of time, uh, order between equals. See, he says there, from the doctrine of the Trinity, we learn that there is order in ultimate reality. God is a God of order. This suggests that there is also order in created life. In the Trinity, although there is order, there is no dominance on the one hand or subservience on the other, but only a relationship of love. Now, I've included some Bible references there to help clarify what sort of order Broad Knox is talking about. What he's saying is that even though the Son is, equally, is equal in divinity, in godness to the Father, he still submits, the Son submits willingly to the Father. As Knox says, there's an order between them, but not one that comes from dominance or from subservience, but entirely a relationship of love. Now, that idea is actually an essential idea if you want to have a biblical understanding of marriage, uh, amongst other things. I mean, Jenny and I are equal before God as man and woman, but if we're going to live as God has instructed us in his word, there is an order in our relationship, but it's not one of dominance from the husband. And nor is it one of subservience from the wife. Both are other person-centered, although it does have a particular shape depending on, upon whether you're the husband or the wife. The husband loves by self-sacrificially putting his wife's needs and wants ahead of his own. And the wife loves by voluntarily, not out of compulsion, voluntarily, Submitting to her husband. But this same idea that there can be order between equals is, is critical for, I think, for a biblical understanding of parenting, for understanding church leadership. In fact, anywhere where there is an asymmetry of roles amongst equals. So you might like to talk a bit more about that later. Uh, and then the final reflection on the importance of God as Trinity is on the top of the next page, page 23. In the Trinity... We see unity without uniformity and diversity without division. This is a massive challenge here for us as a Christian community. I'm just going to read out the quote here from Tim Chester because I think he says it pretty beautifully himself. He says, In the Trinity, the one and the many are perfectly integrated. Unity and diversity are perfectly realized. The unity of God does not compromise the diversity of the person and the diversity of the person's does not compromise the unity of God. And this is how it should be in human society. Humanity is modelled on the triune community. Neither a collectivist vision of society nor an individualist vision reflects our true humanity. Trinitarian Christianity offers a way of being human together that integrates unity and diversity. We are people in community without losing our personal identity. The church is the new humanity remade in the image of God. In the church, we are striving with the Spirit's help to express the plurality and the unity of God, to be the one and the many 
without compromising either. That's our challenge, actually, as a Christian community, to be like God, embrace diversity within the unity that exists in Christ. Okay, so celebrate the real God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Embrace who he is. There's no need for embarrassment. So rather than regarding this doctrine of the Trinity as some sort of embarrassment that God has shown us that he's Father, Son, and Spirit, what do we do with that? We should rejoice in it. As Broughton Knox says there, the doctrine of the Trinity is the glory of the Christian faith. Now, at the beginning of tonight's talk, I mentioned how people today want truth to be simple, entertaining, and practical. Well, I'm not sure that's actually the best measure of truth. What's better, I think, is the checklist there on page 23. Does what we've seen correspond to the information we have? The answer is yes. The doctrine of the Trinity makes perfect sense, makes sense of what God has revealed to us about himself in the Scriptures, in the person of Jesus. It fits that data. Is it coherent? Does it fit together within itself and make sense? Well, yes, it does. It fits together beautifully. It may not be simple, but it is clear. And even if at points we don't know exactly how that works within God himself. Is it pragmatic? Does it make sense of our experience of the world? Yes, it does, especially when it comes to the importance of relationships. That God is Trinity, I think, has profound things to say about our experience of this world. And finally, is it personal? Is it, well, yes, it's, it's not a distant doctrine, is it? We've seen, we're compassed about on every side by God who's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So don't be embarrassed about who God is. In fact, I think we should worship him by praising him for it. Uh, Calvin said, John Calvin, the Trinity is a mystery more to be adored than investigated. Which is a bit of a critique of me, right? Because I've just tried to help us investigate it for the last hour. But actually the Trinity is more to be adored, isn't he? As Father, Son and Spirit than investigated. So it's right that we finish tonight in praise of our God who's Father, Son and Spirit. So I'm just going to give you a moment just to gather your thoughts together. Maybe jot a few thoughts down for your reflections, responses, things you want to take take up as questions or issues. And then I'm going to lead us in a prayer. I'm going to use the words of Isaac Watts's hymn as a prayer. So let me list. We give immortal praise to God the Father's love for all our comforts here and better homes above. You sent your own eternal Son to die for sins that we had done. To God the Son belongs a mortal glory too. You brought us, bought us with your blood from everlasting woe. And now you live and now you reign and you see the fruit of all your pain. To God the Spirit's name, immortal worship give. Your new creating power makes the dead sinner live. Your work completes the great design and fills the soul with joy divine. Almighty God, to thee be endless honours done.
You are the undivided three and the glorious, mysterious one. Where our reason fails with all her powers, there, Father, by your strength, may our faith prevail and our love adore. Amen.